This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we're out of our cozy studio in Washington, D.C. and we're coming to you remotely from Antigua, Guatemala. Our guests this week are all attending a conference about the impact of Central America's elites on the region. A conference co-sponsored by Guatemala's Universidad Rafael Landivar and the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. But before we get to our in-depth interviews, Vanessa Jesus Gonzati is here with a roundup of news from around Latin America. The Venezuelan opposition elected Enrique Capriles Radonsky as the candidate to run against President Hugo Chavez in the fall. The young governor congratulated Venezuelans for participating. For the first time, Venezuelans had the chance to select their own candidates. And that's not the triumph of an organization in particular, but of the country and its democracy. He also criticized Chavez's economic policies and asked for fair elections and balanced media coverage. The opposition sees Capriles Radonsky's victory by 3 million votes to be a great achievement compared to past results. Venezuelan pollster Luis Vicente León called it a historic turnout for the opposition because previous primaries held by Chavez's party have not drawn as many voters. Venezuela is very polarized, but about one out of every four voters is not attached to any political party. Almost 400 people died in a prison in Honduras after a fire broke out Tuesday night. More than half of the prisoners in the Comayagua prison had not been convicted of crimes or were still waiting on their trials. Authorities say an inmate started the fire by burning a mattress. Prisoners were locked in and not able to escape the fire. National Prison System Director Danilo Orellana refused to comment on the supervision or the crowded conditions. Honduran President Porfirio Lobo suspended Orellana and other top officials. Peruvian troops caught the last free leader of the Shining Path rebel group. The guerrilla band was very powerful, well-armed, and lived off the cocaine trade during the 80s and early 90s. Florindo Jose Flores was captured Sunday after being wounded the prior Thursday while attempting to escape Peru's military. Flores, who goes by the rebel name Artemio, had tried to negotiate a truce with the government, but neither President Ollanta Humala nor prior governments had agreed. President Humala says the shining path is no longer a threat to the country. The group mostly collapsed after its most prominent leader was captured in 1992, who is serving life term in prison. Nearly 70,000 civilians were killed during the conflict between the rebels and the state in the 80s and 90s. The U.S. State Department issued a new travel advisory this week urging its citizens to avoid 14 states in northern and central Mexico. U.S. citizens have become victims to drug cartel-related activity. Homicide, gun battles, kidnapping, carjacking, and highway robbery are some of the dangers that they have faced recently. The State Department issued a prior warning last year, and it included parts of Sonora, south of Arizona, and central Jalisco State, where drug cartel violence is widely spread. The advisory says that 130 Americans were murdered in Mexico last year, an increasing figure from 111 the year before and 35 in 2007. This is Vanessa Jesus Gonzari reporting for Latin Pulse. Thanks, Vanessa. 
As we heard a bit earlier, tragedy struck Honduras this week with the world's worst prison fire on record. More than 350 people lost their lives in the fire. Joining us here in Guatemala to react to this tragedy and discuss Honduran politics is Hugo Noy Pino, former finance minister of Honduras and now the head of ICEFI, a think tank in Guatemala focused on economic issues. Welcome to Latin Pulse. Hi, very good. How are you? Good. Um, We'd like to get your reaction to this to this horrible tragedy. The first thing you said to me today when you saw me was, have you heard about this in Honduras? Um, and many people in the United States may not hear about it. So, so your reactions to the tragedy? Well, this is a national tragedy. But even when we are talking about inmates in a jail, uh, you know that it's more than almost 400 people who died yesterday in Honduras. And now I think that the best uh, explanation that the government has to do is to do a very uh, strong investigation with independent people with credibility in order to to have uh, the truth about what happened in, in this jail. I think that this is national tragedy. Uh, is something that reflects the situation in Honduras. The, the, we are talking about a jail uh, of uh, that uh, can be used for almost um, 250 people, uh, but the at the end it was used by 800 people. That does mean that the jail system in Honduras doesn't work and the government knows that and have not done anything uh, to fix it. So what does this say about the conditions of government in Honduras? Is this a government that's doing its job? Well, in general, you, you, you remember that this government uh, is the result of a coup of a state that uh, we have in 2009, uh, even when there were elections. I would say that this is a weak government from different point of view uh, about the popular support, about institutionality. And uh, uh, for me, this government, the priority of this government are more in the direction to have some kind of advantage, economic and political advantage for the members of the ruling party that uh, the interests of the country. We should point out that you, you were part of the former administration, were you not? And so you, you, you have some, some strong feelings, I think, about, about where government is headed in Honduras. Can, can you share those with us, please? Uh, I, I, I would say that I, uh, I was part of the former government of uh, Mr. Celaya, but uh, I resigned uh, at the beginning of the government. I had some difference with him and I went to, to work to, to Washington. But for me, what happened in, in 2009 is, uh, is not acceptable because it was the rupture of the Constitution. Uh, I think that Honduras went back 30 years uh, in, this, uh, in this situation. The, the coup gave the army uh, more... Uh, the army right now is the, uh, the stronger institution that in, the, in the country. And uh, I think that we have had a process in which the, uh, uh, we were trying that the civil government were 
much uh, empowered than, than the military. Um, but in general, uh, after this, uh, this thought, uh, I, I would say that um, for me, the political class in Honduras in general, not just the ruling government, but also the uh, opposition, uh, are a ruling uh, political class that they don't care about what is happening in the country. They care only uh, to be in the government, to have the advantage of the government, but uh, they they don't have the, the the feeling and also they don't have uh, the thought to resolve the problem of the country. And, and those problems would be transparency, corruption. What problems are we talking well, about? Well, we are talking about poverty. That is first of uh, the principal problems in Honduras. Poverty is uh, almost 60, uh, two thirds of the population in Honduras is in, in poverty. 42% are in extreme poverty. And that's mean that you have to reflect in your policy these priorities, health, education, security, personal security. And in, in this case, we, we don't see that these are the, the priorities in, in Honduras, uh, even in, in some part, since they don't have a specific economic uh, policy or development policies, they are trying to uh, invent some kind of um, new models like charter city to give part of the territory to f uh, foreign uh, forces that, that come to develop uh, this part of the territory. That, that that's, that's incredible what is happening in Honduras. So international companies that would come in to do development work. Exactly, but in a part, uh, it's not foreign investment as usual, but this is to give some part of the territory and to have their own rules, their own external policy uh, relationship. So a corporation could supersede national law? Absolutely, absolutely. And the Congress approved this national, this uh, exceptional arrangement for, for, them, for Honduras. Let's go back to this point about extreme poverty, since that's the first thing that you put on the agenda. And this is a term that we don't hear that often in the United States. We certainly hear the term poverty. What would you characterize the living conditions for somebody living in extreme poverty in Honduras? Well, uh, I think to give an idea of what this means, for example, is uh, when you are a when you are born you have uh, the possibility that uh, you reach uh, five years uh, is uh, very low in relationship to other countries. Um, that uh, it means that... Uh, so infant mortality is exactly, very high. Exactly, infant mortality. Uh, at the same time, uh, when uh, around one third of the young people who has the age to, to go to high school they are not going to high school. When you have a health condition in general that are uh, very poor because the state don't, doesn't have the resources uh, to reach uh, people in the different uh, part of the country. And when you don't have a, a job, a job that gives you the income to support your family. And that's are the, the most uh, dramatic a situation uh, when you you have this situation of poverty. And so then I guess we could extrapolate some and say that this, this fire, this tragedy that happened, is also a symptom of this particular 
political and economic situation in, in Honduras. Absolutely. I think that you can say that part of the violence in Honduras is the result of drug trafficking, that that's, that's true. But also part of this situation is because you have a segment of the population who don't have jobs, that don't have access to, to education, to health, that is uh, the, the, the best condition that you can uh, have as a result that a young man or a young woman uh, try to, to find easy solutions because they don't have a, an exit. I, I think we should point out that you, you said 800 people in, in, in the, involved in this prison or jail because mm-hmm. the terms I think are mixed here mm-hmm. in this okay. condition. Um, half of those people were had not even been tried yet for a crime, so they had not been convicted. Um, and is this also a commentary about the justice system in Honduras? Yes, yes, it is. That's happened very often in, in different prisons or, or jails around Honduras, that you have people who has not been systematic on justice. And the, this is where... Uh, we used to to call uh, in Spanish like a, this a long line of uh, uh, files that are uh, in front of the justice system, but they don't have any any result at all. Uh, the, the the final process of the accusation has not been done, and they are just uh, in jail uh, momentarily. One of the reasons that you and I are both in Guatemala um, today in Antigua is is for a conference dealing with elites and elite structures in Central America. And I, I wonder if if Honduras also has this problem, how would you characterize this to people in the United States about how the elites control that economic system that hasn't allowed these resources to filter down to the rest of the population? I would say that the best characterization of the behavior of this elite in Honduras is given for this measure that we use to uh, to measure uh, inequality. Uh, this the, the Gini coefficient that is used at international level. Honduras has one of the highest uh, Gini coefficient in Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, 0.57. And uh, I, I can say that uh, with respect to this inequality, 20% of the highest income in Honduras, they concentrate uh, around 85% of the income. That's, that could give you that in this sense, there is a process economically, politically, and social process that all the benefits of the economic growth go to a few hands. Anything else you'd like to tell us about the political or economic system in in Honduras while we have you here today? Well, uh, I would say that um, the United States as a superpower and a nation that has a a lot of influence around the the world, uh, I I think that uh, the policy that uh, the United States has had uh, for Honduras and principally in the middle of the situation in 19, uh, in 2009 
uh, has not been right. I, I think that there has been... That would be the policy with the coup d'etat. Exactly, exactly. I think that uh, at the end, uh, the United States, uh, I would say it implicitly, support this coup. And uh, the, the result right now is that we have a population very polarized and a situation in which uh, not just to return to normality uh, has been uh, very negative. Uh, I, I would like to, to see a more positive influence uh, in, uh, from the United States in Central America in general and in Honduras in particular try to 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 help to resolve this uh, this problem of poverty and not just to guarantee a, um, a a some kind of a stability uh, stability could be fine in the short run but it is not fine in the middle and, and the long run well that's all the time we have thanks for joining us ugo noe pino former finance minister of honduras and now the head of icefi a think tank in guatemala I want to finish and then go to, to be able to and have, my parents couldn't have. I'll even make, because I know it's the best thing I can do for my. I want to finish school and then go to college to be able to graduate and have the future my parents couldn't have. I'll even make sacrifices because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. It takes the words of a parent to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the tools and information to help your kids go to college. It's free and it's available in Spanish. Remember, their tomorrow depends on your words today. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Joining us now is economist Ricardo Barrientos of ICEFI, a Guatemalan think tank. Ricardo has been nice enough to visit us in Washington, D.C. in the past, so this week we return the favor visiting him here in Guatemala. The big news this week in Guatemala is a major reform of the country's tax code. That sounds like fairly dry material, but why is this making waves here, Ricardo, and why is this so important? Well, uh, Guatemala uh, has a long story having troubles to make uh, things fair between the relationship between the private sector and the government. And this kind of relationship has been quite troublesome when the, uh, we speak about taxes. Guatemala has one of the lowest tax rates in the region, uh, even in the hemisphere. It only uh, collects 10.5, um, almost 11% of GDP, which is one of the lowest. And the reason of this problem is that um, the power uh, sectors or the private sector, the, 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 the farms, the farmers are so powerful that they have the grip in order to manipulate the state in order to get privileges and not to, to pay taxes. They they don't see any incentive in order to pay taxes because they are enjoying a lot of privileges. So this was, uh, and I am talking of these kind of things for almost two centuries, maybe three centuries ago. So this was one of the main structural causes of the civil war that uh, 
damaged the, the country uh, from around 1960. And when the war, the civil war finished in 1996, one of the main commitments that the government made in the accords, in the peace accords, were to, to, to approve a fiscal reform. This was in 1996. Since then, this commitment, this uh, uh, compromise uh, uh, by the government has been unfulfilled. It was not accomplished. Um, so we waited 15 years for this to happen. Uh, yes, and uh, for example, <clears throat> this, uh, this fail in order to, to, to accomplish this uh, was revised in 2000 and um, several sectors of civil society, political parties, uh, private sector, uh, government, Congress, uh, signed a fiscal pact. It was 20, uh, May 25 of, of 2000. So during almost a decade, uh, there have been many uh, tries in order to, to approve a tax reform. The last commission of the fiscal pact uh, worked between October 2006 and January 2008 and uh, the the task for this fiscal pact commission was to prepare um, a proposal for an integral fiscal reform that includes uh, quality and transparency of public expenditures and tax revenues. Uh, the last administration, the, administ the administration of President Colom uh, made several attempts in order to approve this uh, fiscal pact commission proposal for a tax reform and it failed it failed because it suffered a blockade a political blockade by the private sector now we in january of this 2012 uh, uh, we have elections in 2011 sorry and uh, we have a new government a new president a former uh, guatemalan army general uh, government uh, which is more close to the private sector and in just in a matter of three weeks this government has succeeded in, a, in, in the approval, in the congressional approval of the same tax reform proposal that the government of uh, Alvaro Colom tried to approve. So Now we should point out that, that you were part of the Colom administration yes, for some period of time. I served as a vice minister of public finance so the the thing that uh, we are seeing here is the same proposal the same things in the in the law uh and the and the political po uh, uh, and the pressure sectors the private sector has said no to a to a one administration and just say in three weeks yes to and to the new administration uh, a more f a right wing government that took uh, office in Guatemala in past January, and uh, the bottom line is okay. This in general is okay uh, because the uh, tax reform has been approved. Uh, a tax reform that was in general based by the recommendations of the fiscal pact commission, but it, uh, it reveals a deep weakness in the Guatemalan state. How come it is possible that uh, a group of uh, entrepreneurs has the power to say yes 
to a policy of one one particular administration and say no to another particular administration. This is a structural weakness of the Guatemalan state. The new president, uh, President Otto Perez Molina, uh, we, we should get his name in here so that we make some difference between him and the Cologne administration. Um, I, I, I could tell that you're a little bit bothered that, that his administration is now going to get credit for something that that the Cologne administration spent many years trying to get done. No, no, that's not the, the issue. The issue is not that uh, uh, this administration is taking the glory or, or the, the, in, in order to approve the, 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 the tax reform. I think they are doing uh, their job. That that's the issue. Is not the, the problem is not at the side of the government and who's the president and who's the minister of public finance. No, the issue is who presses the bottom in order to give red light or green light to, to, to a public policy. Uh, this is the same for, for example, some uh, private sector government relationships like, uh, for example, uh, mining. Uh, there is a, one particular case in Guatemala of a Canadian uh, investment in mining in, in, the, in, the, uh, in Guatemala, which is paying uh, taxes and, and, and and all all these payments to the government in a voluntary agreement, not like a compulsory tax that it should be, and and is and is the normal way in every part of the world. They decide how much and when to pay. So this is not this is not good. The other thing that I want I would like to point is that um, the content of this new tax reform is quite important because. Uh, it is an, uh, a total overhaul of the income tax in Guatemala. It's direct taxation reform by a right-wing government, which is quite interesting because it's a, a quite wise political uh, bet by the new government. So I'm not angry that they are taking the glory mm -hmm. for approving the, 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 the previous government proposal. It's, I mean, I am happy that they are uh, um, putting in the table the, the right the right the right actions uh, that bothers me is that the weakness of, of, of the Guatemalan state now, let me follow on this because in the United States we have this debate now about the one percent the one percent of the elites don't pay enough taxes and many people are protesting this and there is a movement to try to get more taxes from those who are of the elite class what you're telling me is that finally now some of the elites, because they've agreed to pay some of this here in Guatemala, have assented to this after several hundred years. Um, I think your issue is that shouldn't all the rest, shouldn't the 99% have something to say about them paying their fair share? Now they've finally decided that Guatemala is poor enough and that infrastructure needs their help and that this new state, this new conservative president needs their help, so now they're going to pay their fair share. Is that summing up your position fairly well? Yes, more or less, yes. This is a former general of the army, and he's a very practical man. And uh, after the, 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 the external, the foreign uh, uh, shock of 2009 of the, of the global recession, uh, the Guatemalan state finances are in, in a very, very deep crisis. So he needs the money in order to run the government. So they have, uh, they may uh, be thinking of making everyone to pay a little bit more, but the, the little club of the privileged uh, elite is going to enjoy the same or increased 
fiscal privileges. So this is an issue. So this fiscal reform is one step uh, ahead, but there is the problem that maybe by the thing that is doing the left hand is not closed by the thing that is going to do the right hand. That's all the time we have today for Ricardo Barrientos, an economist with Guatemala's ICEFI, an economic think tank. Thanks for joining it's us. It's my pleasure, and uh, I, am, I am really honored to be with you. Thank you. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook, or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Travel support for this program provided by the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Vanessa Jesus-Gonzati and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions.